Hello, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine, and you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. Tonight we're in the realm of the senses with uh, Professor Barry Smith, who's at the Institute of Philosophy and uh, the School of Advanced Studies, which sounds like somewhere you need an extra brain to get in. Uh, he has a particular interest in the experience of understanding language. We're going to be talking about uh, the nature of human experience generally. Norman Backrack is an epiphenomenalist, which I'll get him to explain soon. And Richard Marshall is a student of the connection between the mind and the brain and is our man off the street. Also with us is uh, Adam Paul Leach, who will be playing live music to stimulate our senses and our minds. Uh, so let's, let's start at the foundations of understanding human experience. Um, Barry, what are sensations? Sensations are the ways we know about the world. They're our immediate <laughs> connection to the world around us. We touch things, we smell them, we feel them, uh, we see. Uh, and usually, although we talk about perceiving things, we perceive because we perceive them by one of the senses. Okay. By smell, by touch, by feel, and so on. Do you differentiate between uh, the mechanism of the senses and the actual feelings of senses or the experiences of senses? Well, our experiences give us senses, but they give us... Uh, our, sorry, our senses give us experiences, but they give us experiences of different kinds. Uh -huh. So there's a very different kind of experience you have when you're tasting something or when you're seeing it, mm -hmm. or when you're hearing something or when you're smelling it. So really, we're always getting a perception of the world around us in one or another sensory modality, one or another yeah. way of sensing. Okay. I mean, is there any other way that we can experience the world apart from through our senses, do you think? Well, we can experience the world um, in thought, and we certainly uh -huh. also know a lot about yeah. the world through language. And I sure. think we'll talk about language later. Yeah. Interestingly, the philosopher Thomas Reed said language was like a sixth sense. Mm -hmm. So as well as the five senses, language also brought us information about the world. Okay, well, yeah, like you say, maybe once we've sort of covered a bit of senses. I mean, um, I, philosophers call sensations qualia for some reason. I mean, um, what, what are they? And are they the building blocks of experience? Does anybody have any views on qualia? Well, it's interesting that philosophers call them qualia. I mean, a lot of philosophers don't believe in qualia, but they might still believe in sensations. What's the difference? Well, certainly um, psychologists use the word sensation to mean just the early stages of uh, visual processing or auditory processing, mm -hmm. things that are happening from the ears in towards the brain. And once we've interpreted the signal and started using it and thinking about the world, mm -hmm. it's no longer a sensation. But qualia is something like the taste of a peach or the smell of coffee. Right. Um, it's supposed to be some conscious way we experience the world that's not reducible to anything physical. So uh -huh. people who really like to think there's more to us than just our physical matter like to talk about these funny things, qualia. Yeah, so um, are you using the term sensation to mean uh, the physical process of picking up uh, information about the outside world and that's different from uh, say the taste of well, it's, it starts with that. I right. mean, unless you've, unless you've got something in your mouth and on your tongue, you're not going to be tasting it at all. So there's got to be a physical process well, that gets it going. I think what's interesting is where we think uh, it moves from being physical contact to something mental or something experiential. Well, I think, I think you're wrong about what you just said, because I think you can have sensations certainly without any input from the outside world. For instance, when you're dreaming. Not necessarily um, without something physical going on, though, because the brain is active when you're dreaming. Now, the question is, whether the physical source of that 
that experience is on the inside or the outside, but I don't think we can have them without a physical source. Okay. Um, Norman, you're an epiphenomenalist. Uh, first of all, what, what is an epiphenomenalist, and what do they have to say about the relations between sensations and brains, for instance? Well, epi just means on or above. Right. An epiphenomenon was a term used in medicine to mm. mean a symptom a person showed arising from their underlying physiology. So to say that consciousness is an epiphenomenon is to say that it is a symptom of the brain's activity. We each have 100 billion nerve cells working away, and these cells evolve according to exactly the same laws of chemistry and physics as any other piece of physical matter. Right. So believed the philosopher George Santayana, the biologist Thomas Huxley, and other people, of course. We, our brains were an integral part of the physical universe and evolved along with it. Right. Shall I continue another please, bit? Yeah, okay. Please, tell us how <laughs> that relates uh, I, to I the will mind. just say a bit more then. Now, a symptom is not always bad. We can experience pleasant feelings, for example, when tasting good wine, uh -huh. but also unpleasant feelings, e.g. a nasty toothache. Can I just stop you for clarification? You're saying that basically the mind is a symptom of the activity of the brain, yeah? Yes, and uh, I would perhaps have a slightly extended definition of qualia uh -huh. from Barry's definition. Uh -huh. I think I find it useful to think of it as a quali, the singular, as a unit of conscious experience of any kind, whatever. So as well mm -hmm. as the five senses, it could include, as far as I can see, um, a thought, uh, any conscious experience, an item of pleasure okay. or pain. And if, uh, just because I feel I need to talk about that, if I'm going to talk about consciousness okay. is part of this theory, so it's a wider thing. I think you've got an objection. So well, we're, we're, we're all conscious now at the moment, I hope, and we're, we're talking, we're sitting in a studio, we're, we're looking at our surroundings, we're smelling the smell of the furniture and the chairs, and we can feel the chairs under our, our bottoms. But the question is, how do you break things down into units? You talked about a quale being a unit of consciousness. Consciousness seems to be uh, multifaceted. It seems to be um, a continuous going on. And I'm just wondering how you break things down. That would indeed be very difficult, but I just think that it's certainly more than just sensations. I do want to include any aspect of conscious experience. I agree, you can't be precise. We can't, we're not able to do that. But nevertheless, we can see that there is this variety of kinds of experience mm -hmm. we can have. So um, uh, can I just add that, um, so I would say conscious experience includes not only the senses, mm -hmm. taste, sight, sound, touch, etc., which have been mentioned, but also feelings such as pleasure and pain, happiness and unhappiness, also thoughts, yeah. our interior monologues. And I would say that one wants to bring all that into play if you're going to talk yeah, about well sure they're all aspects of experience but the question is are they all the same type of aspects of experience richard which side of this divide do you fall on uh, barry or norman to I, I have to say um i uh, have a lot more sympathy uh with barry's side as, as he expressed it so far um, um you know with respect to norman i have a problem with the idea of um uh, quality singular you know um capturing a unit of thought um uh, there's very little that we really know uh you know 
absolutely and explicitly about consciousness and thought. But one of the things is that it's a process. Right. Um, you know, we can observe changes in the brain, um, but you can't uh, take a photograph of a brain and say, that is the qualia of... Uh, coffee or, or, or joy or whatever. Um, it, the brain's multifaceted um, and consciousness and experience are multifaceted um, and multidimensional. Now, um, at home on my kitchen wall, mm -hmm. I've got um, a printout of my brain at work. All right, okay. um, I took part in some research um, with the explicit intent of getting this image. Um, it was... Uh, um, uh, a, a brain scan, um, a, a positron emission scan um, of my brain wondering what's going on. Um, so uh, I was played various sounds through headphones whilst in the scanner. Um, then I was played unfamiliar sounds, and by subtracting the, the, the auditory and the recognition sort of picture from, from the, the, the what's going on picture, you're just left with what's going on. So I've got a picture of my brain thinking, going, what's going on? But I know <laughs> that that slice of my brain uh -huh. is... It, it, it tells me where it happens, or at least tells me part of where it happens, but that doesn't tell me anything about what it means to go, what's that noise I just heard? Well, this is the essential thing, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's a difference... There's an apparent difference between the physical stuff, the brain, and the experiential stuff that makes up the mind. Um, Barry, I, I seem to remember you mentioning to me before that you think there's more than, or much more than five senses. What other sort of senses do we have? Oh yes, I mean it, it's, it's funny, when people talk about knowing their own consciousness and mm -hmm. talking about qualia and so on, they think well I just introspect and I find I've got these five senses. We've got many more senses. We've got a sense of balance. Right. Uh, you know when you've lost it. Or when you're in a lift, you can feel whether you're going up or down because of the movement of uh, fluid in your ears. And if that gets mm -hmm. disrupted, you'll have motion sickness. We've also got um, a sense of effort and a sense of agency. I feel that I'm moving my hand rather than right. my hand being moved for me. Okay. Uh, you've got, you've you got think a, that's a type of sensation? It's definitely a type of sensation. Uh -huh. I mean, I think the sensation would be very different between moving your hand to reach for a cup and having your hand taken there. Mm -hmm. uh, even though the movement would be the same, the sensations would be different. There's also a feeling of ownership. So some people have have uh, an arm which they disown and say it, it's not theirs, usually mm -hmm. as a result of brain damage, yeah. the parietal uh, area. And then you might tap the hand and they may uh, register that there's something going on. But if you say, is that your hand? They say, no. Now, I'm taking it that it feels different to them. That's why mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like their hand. Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? So um, what's the sort of um, unifying property that, that all, sensa all sensations have in common? Well, I wonder, if, I wonder if there is one. Uh -huh. I mean, maybe what we should do is get away from that kind of taxonomy. But, I mean, if you, if you ask neuroscientists these uh -huh. days how many senses have we got, there's a fight between saying, say, 26 and 33. So we're getting very far from the five. Okay, 33, okay, that's a lot, isn't it? Well, so. many of them, you'll find that many of the things we call a single sense start to break down into more than one sense. For example, we've got two senses of smell. When you sniff and you take in air from the environment, you can smell things around you, fire, predators, food. But when you're um, letting the air travel in the other direction from the back of your throat out through the nose you're getting um, an awareness of whether your food is uh, nice or nasty, mm -hmm. whether you want to eject it, and that sense of smell is different because that's telling you about your innards, not about the outside world. Those look like two senses of smell and not one. We just call okay. them one. Yeah, like we might call, uh, like, 
some tribes might call green and blue the same colour, right. for instance, something right. like that. We don't right. have to like... Okay, Norman? I, I think we're just at the beginning of understanding how the brain really works. Sure. And uh, when, when you said that... Uh, Richard. Uh, Richard, that he has photographs on his bedroom wall mm-hmm. of his brain... Kitchen and, uh, wall. His kitchen walls, OK, <laughs> parts of his brain. I mean, these are clearly photographs of the physical state taken by MRI scanner or some such yeah. thing. I tend to think that this is a, we're a bit like someone approaching a library, right. a public library, and all they can see are headings. Over there it's fiction, over there it's biography, somewhere else it's history. But they haven't a clue about what's on page 24 of that particular book. In other words, we need a thousand times much more detail, which we won't get for another yeah. hundred years okay. maybe, before we can really deal with this question properly. Okay, well, that, actually, that my next question was, I was going to ask all of you to sort of have some sort of answer, maybe, be or, or think about this does science know anything about how sensations are created by the brain's activity say i'm looking at something yellow like the wall is yellow here how does my brain create this experience of yellow i think this is the central mystery of consciousness is how how does the physical thing create this uh, this sort of experience but does any does anybody know of any way that science can be said to explain this creation? That, that may not be what science is trying to do, uh-huh. and I think, I think it is a very hard question. You're right. Uh-huh. We're very far from knowing, and I agree with Norman, very far from knowing how the brain creates that experience. But this is what we could find out. We could find out what, what might have happened to you to prevent you having that experience? Uh-huh. What happens when people selectively lose not their vision, but just their colour vision? Okay. What happens when they lose only some of the colours? Uh-huh. Now, if you find out that losses of that kind are associated with particular damage in certain regions of the brain, you begin to understand what some of the components of the cortex are that are necessary. You've got to have these in order to have colour vision. We also know, interestingly, we're trichromatic, that we've, we, we are different from other animals. Some birds, pigeons are, are, are quattrochromatic. Chromatic. We don't know how the world looks to them. I mean, if you're making many more discriminations of colour than we're making, what's that like? We don't know. But we know that you'd better have the rods and cones we have if you're to see colours. So you think birds have, you know, experiences of colour that we're incapable of having, basically. They experience colours that we don't know anything about. Very likely That's so. That's an interesting idea. I wonder what they're like. We can't even imagine it, can we? Uh, Okay, Richard. Um, I, I think Barry makes a very good point um, talking about the uh, the extended colour vision of, of birds because when we're, when we're talking about experience, sensations and consciousness, we have to remember that um, the world isn't as we see it. Um, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it's a mediated and constructed reality, um, constructed by your brain. Constructed by our brain. Constructed by our by our memory, by our mm-hmm. by, by our by our capabilities. For instance, do I have rods and cones? Am I colourblind? Whatever. But also, you know, what are the associations I have? Um, you know. Uh, I may walk into a room and say, that's a nice table. Somebody else might walk in and say, that's a nice magazine rack. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, un- unless there's some kind of mysterious platonic ideal magazine rack out there, we're never going to settle the argument about whether it's a coffee table or a magazine rack. I say you go to all the best parties, don't you, Richard? Anyway, <laughs> Norman? Uh, your point about yellow, I think yeah. the, the main thing is that yellow does not exist outside our brains. Right. And nor does... Yeah. 
sound exists outside our brains. Okay, look. Uh, the, the sun emits photons of a particular right. energy. The yellow is only created somehow by our conscious brains. I think, uh, I think uh, I Barry's going to explode. Yeah, if I, I, don't know how, I don't know how Norman knows that. I mean, that's a, that's a bold claim. And, and for someone who was showing some caution about what science could tell us to tell us that colour isn't out there or yellow isn't out there seems, seems extreme. I mean, look... We know that um, red will affect um, bulls. Uh, they'll charge at red rags. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, red dots on the side of a fish or on the side of a bird will make other birds peck. We're not the only creatures, and their brains are very different, who mm-hmm. respond to things that are red. Now, I'm perfectly happy to think there are colours out there, but we experience colours in a very different way. I mean, yeah. if the light is a little bit dark in the corner... The yellow will look closer to brown than it looks to yellow. But the nice thing my brain does is it does a kind of smoothing of that. It gives me information about the colour not having changed, even though light is reflecting more brightly at the centre than at the edges. Okay. uh, Well, this is a good point to go into into a song now. We've got Adam Leach. She's going to sing us a song. I think this is Shine On. That's right. Okay. Uh, Adam, give us your stuff.
If you like um, if you like Adam's music, it's adampaulleach.com, sure. and you can get up and um, find out some songs and stuff. Uh, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You're listening to Philosophy Now radio show, and we're talking about the nature of human experience. What is it, and how is it? What what's how's it made up? Uh, I'm I'm just going to go back to. Uh, uh, what Barry said immediately before the song, and I, I'm going to say I, I, I agree with Norman and I disagree with Barry. I think that outside of minds, there aren't, there is no such thing as yellow. There is only, for instance, electromagnetic waves. There are no, uh, as we're calling them, sensations that exist outside of minds. Well, there may be no sensations that exist outside of minds, but sensations are the perceptions of colours. They're right. not colours. Right. I mean. You, you want to distinguish between sensations that are just, as it were, just all about you, like pain, uh-huh. and sensations like uh, the touch or feel of cloth when you feel okay. su- some velvet under your fingers. That's giving you information about the environment. Similarly, heat and cold, when you have sensations of heat, unless you've got a fever, it's telling you the environment's warm. Sure. The question is whether color experience is a bit more like touching the cloth <coughs> or um, or smelling burning or a bit more like just having a pain. Is it that all that work the brain's doing to figure out how color is constant despite the mm-hmm. changes in light and despite a shadow on the color of the, the wall, um, is it doing all that computing just to amuse itself or is it putting us better in touch with the environment because colors matter to tell the difference between yeah. ripe fruit and unripe fruit to tell the difference between a predator and a friendly uh, animal you've got to get their colors right i think but i think you've got to distinguish there between uh, different colors and different wavelengths of light what do you think about this richard we've got one pro two, two um, cons I'll, i suppose i'd say uh in this case i do sort of fall more with uh, norman and, and yourself um in the sense that yellow i mean first of all yellow of course is a convention but you know we're not arguing about about, you know, the name yellow. Yeah. Um, 
But if if we go beyond that and say, for instance, you know, what does a bird see? I and mean, we actually have this on, on wildlife documentaries right. sometimes. We, we have, you know, sort of false colour images of, of, of what a beetle sees or what a bird sees or whatever. And I always shout at the television, no, it doesn't, because it, it, it's impossible mm-hmm. to convey what it's like to have another sense because we just don't have the range of experiences no. to accommodate it. So if you can see, you know, all the, the, the visible colours as, as we perceive them, plus ultraviolet, and, and infrared there's, there's no way you can show that all you can do is shift something around yeah. add something in a false color but it's not what the experience of yeah. it would be like but a person who's colorblind is surely missing something yeah it's missing an experience of color right uh so it's just missing bit of their bit of their own internal landscape i don't think that's right i mean i think they're yeah. definitely missing something out there in the world I'm not sure they're missing a sort of stimulus but look the there's brain. a different there's a you, you said electromagnetic uh, wavelength it's actually reflectance properties. It's, yeah. a, it's a computation of, of three different reflectance properties from the surface of objects. Right. Objects reflect light, and we're very good at detecting the kinds of light that they reflect. Mm-hmm. But why stop at saying that uh, the colors are there? It's very interesting that everything else is there, and suddenly colors are going to be just sort of internal. They don't feel as though they're internal. <clears throat> okay. I think the colors aren't there. The uh-huh. sound isn't there. The taste of salt isn't lurking around so in a box of sodium chloride. Good grief. Um, so none of these, what I would call, sec- well, what Locke had called secondary qualities. Which means ex- what? I think it's second. Well, I, it's... It means qualities that we experience, as I understand it. So the whiteness... What we're calling of, sensations. You know, yeah. if you say the whiteness of snow, uh-huh. it's quality, a, a quality yeah. of snow that it can reflect all the different wavelengths. We see it as shape, white. And that's but, not a secondary but, quality. No, no. So, it so, may, so it's not just it, that we experience it. So i better make the distinctions can, in as you're going to talk about. I, um, uh, John Locke uh, and I think Galileo before him came up with a distinction between primary and secondary qualities. Secondary qualities are the, the qualities that you give objects in virtue of experiencing them, like their taste and their colour. And primary qualities are uh, qualities that are supposed to exist in objects independent of your experience of them, such as their sh- shape and their mass and how many there are. Okay, that's... Can I okay, just car- uh, carry on take up one point yeah you i'm sure the japanese will soon be able to build a robot in fact we could a robot car that would approach traffic lights it would detect whether it's in barry's terms shining with red amber or green light and it would react accordingly Mm -hmm. but i don't think we'd necessarily assume that it had any conscious experience what it was doing is measuring the energy of the main colors reflected from those three lamps detecting their energy and then allocating according to its program whether it should stop or go. So it's perfectly possible for mm-hmm. the bull that was mentioned and insects and animals, the whole range of animals to react to all the different wavelengths and all the different energies and all the different things in the world mm-hmm. without their having what well, I think we're really trying to get at in this program, what is the special nature of conscious experience? Mm-hmm. Now I think I'm being very cautious if I say I know for certain that I am conscious at this precise moment and I can believe other humans with the same came out the same box are also conscious but where I think I'm being uh, less than cautious if I assume that these qualities of consciousness exist out there and as a kind of um, I would tend to say if they are that's marvelous but I don't think I have any reason to believe that Qualities of consciousness don't exist out there, but the question is whether they give you consciousness of something. Now, pain gives you 
consciousness pretty much of itself. But but when you have the feel of velvet under your hands, you're aware of the texture of the velvet. It is giving you information consciously about something out there. Now, yeah. the, the, the point is, let's, let's do a better job for secondary qualities. The difference, between secondary, the difference between secondary qualities and primary qualities might come to this. The idea is you're supposed to only be able to experience sounds in the sense of hearing. You only experience colours through vision. You only experience taste through uh, tasting something. On the other hand, size, you can both see and feel. So size and shape is meant to be more objective because mm-hmm. you can get at it by more than one sense. Okay, yes, I now, agree with that. That's right. But, but Norman will then say that taste is a secondary quality. However, you don't taste something by using just one sense. To taste anything, you need touch, taste, and smell. There's the texture of something on your tongue, which makes a difference to how you taste it, whether it's creamy or whether it's rough. Whether a biscuit tastes stale or fresh is a matter not of its smell or its uh, salty or sweetness, but how it crumbles. Mm-hmm. So we're using taste, touch, and smell. Three senses are collaborating to put us in touch with properties of our food. So that was supposed to be a secondary quality, but sure. it doesn't fit the definition. Well, I'm making a much simpler point, I think, right. that the, the saltiness of the salt, in my opinion, does not lurk in the sodium chloride crystal. And the smoothness of the velvet is not a property of the velvet. It's a property after, as Barry has described, once our brain gets to work on it, we have these particular sensations. And if we're discussing whether conscious qualities exist out there in the world, if I thought we were... So texture is not a property of the world? I'm sorry? S- texture is not a property of the world? Whether but, something smooth or rough can, is not a property no, no, of the world? No, certainly you can define that objectively. I think the, t- that the would touch be one is more problematic I think yeah. it is more problematic. I think, Norman, we, I think Norman's going to go wobbly on, on, on touch. <laughs> well, I think, I think of a violin just vibrating, I mean, at 200 times per second. It doesn't emit a sound. It simply vibrates How silently. How do you know that? Uh, I'm very cautious. And uh, no, 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 you're The, the you're air molecules vibrate vibrate at 200 times per second. Your eardrum does. And then eventually, something in our auditory cortex, that's the first appearance of sound. This is the way I see it. That's the first first appearance of the perception of sound. You're not distinguishing between sounds and perceiving them. I can misperceive sounds, and therefore sounds are not just what's going on in me. You can misperceive sounds. You can go deaf and fail yeah. to hear sounds. You can oh, hear course. them as muffled yes. when they're not actually muffled sounds. Okay, objectively, there are acoustic vibrations using a, a sort of physics-type term. But why reduce sounds. the world to physics? <laughs> now, it's very interesting <laughs> that Norman wants to be cautious, but when he describes the world, he suddenly becomes a very reductive scientist and starts telling us that the only things we can talk about are um, light intensity uh, light intensity, or, yep. or, or vibration. Oh, no, th- Why doesn't the world contain much more than is dreamt of in Norman's philosophy? Uh, uh, okay, there's two things here. First of all, <laughs> I think... First of all, I think... How can we resolve need, this? First of all, I think you need to, to distinguish between what you experience in your... Um, in your mind and and what the experience is of so you've got the outside world that you're representing in your experience and uh, so uh, if you do that i mean why can't you make the distinction and say you know the sensations are what you experience in your mind but what their experience is of is something completely different uh richard you wanted to say i just wanted to come back on barry um saying that uh, texture is essentially a primary quality that it's you know that it's out there um, completely separate from our perception of it. And I, 
I have to disagree um, because texture is all about, as you say, you know, touch, and it, it's scalar. I mean, colour. What does that mean? Sorry. Well, so, so so it depends on the scale. You know, sort of. So let's say some sandpaper, right? right. Let, let's say you know, um, I were a very small person, and sandpaper would suddenly be you know a craggy landscape. Uh-huh. Uh, let's say I, I suddenly become a giant, then sandpaper is as smooth as silk to me. Yeah. Uh, whereas something like colour. Um, no matter how large or small I am, the wavelength of light that's entering my, my iris um, is exactly the same. If you're too small, you won't get colours. Well, know. that's as true, we but that's, okay. I think, you know... If you were the size of an atom, would you be able to see any colours? Well, you see, look, I can, I can understand Norman thinking colour may be just about my sensations, but I'm, I'm wondering whether you think that my sensations have a texture. I don't think my sensations are smooth or rough. It's the cloth that's smooth or rough. The sandpaper is smooth or rough, not my sensation. Yeah, it's just a category mistake to talk that way. You define the, the texture of the material by some objective means, how many... And we can take that in through our subjective experience. Yeah. But notice our subjective experience is a way of putting us in touch with the objective world. Question... Mm-hmm that's open is is it like that with colour now I'm just amazed that you can pronounce and say it isn't I, do, uh, no know? I think you've got to define what you're actually doing when you're seeing you're seeing things like I mean I mean to me it doesn't make any sense to say you know what what is an experience of colour independent of a mind all you've got is the the stimulation for the experience of color which is we I, take i'm it not so narcissistic as to think if i disappeared now a lot of the world would disappear with me and no, nor do i think the that, species, you're presupposing what I, you think the world is uh, well, and you are too so uh-huh. so we're actually making yeah, no progress yeah, right. but the point is that uh, whether or not there are colors out there um, is is should be distinguished from the question of how we perceive them mm-hmm. now people can perceive them better or worse but when we talk about better or worse is that just a comparison between each other's experience? But that's difficult because I don't know how you experience colours. If we actually have a reference point in the world, we can say people experience colours better or worse. But it's not about um, what, you can, what you can prove on disprove. Anyway, Norman, just a, I thought uh, philosophy was all about that. <laughs> no, it's about Barry mentioned the bull seeing red. Now, we, we all say the bull reacts to a red rag. I mean, uh, if... Richard if redness, okay, if redness was an objective quality out there, then every animal, including the bull, would have to experience the same no. colour red. Why? I don't think... Well, Why, you're okay. confusing perception I don't, I don't of colour with colour. But, but, Norman, you're All confusing this. perception of colour with colour. Yeah. Why, if redness is out there, would everybody have to perceive it? The fact that there might be a bottle in the cupboard over there doesn't mandate that I perceive it. I've got to be in the right conditions, I've got uh, to have course. the right relation to it, and I have to have the appropriate apparatus. Uh, OK, let me be more careful. Uh-huh. I would say normal humans with normal eyesight, eyesight experience the red rag in the same particular way. OK, but all we have we no see, idea yeah. what the bull experiences. It might experience it as blue, as what we would think as blue, or as nothing at all. Well, it may simply detect... The energy of the photons reflected by that moving well, rag a lot and react, yeah. and that's why, it's, for our ordinary language, we've got to keep talking about colours as though they're out there. But I think if we want to be mm-hmm. uh, get to this bottom problem, problem we I think it's a useful distinction. Why is the poor old bull denied the experience? <laughs> <laughs> well, are you, yeah. are you are you affirming that you know definitely it sees no, red? No, but I think it's much more explanatory of its relation to that 
colour that we also perceive, we can see its behaviour is affected by that colour. Mm-hmm. And to think it's the same thing that we're picking out, which is also causally responsible for its behaviour, mm-hmm. I think we should just think of it as a colour. I, I have to say, I, I, I'm, I think it's kind of nonsense, really, to, to say, you know, to ask, does a bull experience red the way I do, any more than, than it's sensible to ask, you know, sort of, how would I feel if I were a bat? Yeah. Oh, well, for a start, I wouldn't be a person that could ask that question. Um, and uh, while I can sort of be perfectly comfortable with the idea that, that, that a bull has uh, a degree of awareness, um, mm-hmm. let's call it consciousness with a small c, just right. to s- avoid getting into an argument. Um, it has in which perception it has, of the world. Uh, yeah, it, it has perceptions it, and it responds to those perceptions and it, it has some kind of model of the world that it builds. Now, we, you know, we know so little about our own consciousness, we know far less about a bull's or bats or, or anything mm-hmm. else. Um, but uh, does a, a bull sort of perceive red uh, side note, it's not red actually it's just the waving thing apparently um, somebody will otherwise phone in and say it's not red rags, but you know, does, does the bull per, you know, perceive something and respond to it? Yes. Does it see the same red as me or is it experience of red anything like mine? Not really, no it couldn't be, it's a bull I Well, agree, you I know, agree but does it, does, it, does it have the same red uh, colour Experience. I don't think we need to worry whether it has the same red colour experience. I think what I'm saying is it's reacting to the same thing I'm reacting yeah. to. You're well, giving that in terms that don't involve colour, and I think you'll have, it, you'll have a hard job distinguishing between okay. things that are red and things that aren't. OK, we'll stop there and have another <laughs> song. Um, would you like to introduce this song, please, Ed? Sure, this song's called Tell Me It's OK. OK, yes, oh, I'm sure it's OK. Yeah. <laughs> please tell me it's OK. I will tell you. I got a hole in my pocket and a hole in my hand There's a whole lot of nothing I just don't understand There were legs in my trousers and arms in my sleeves There's a stranger in my mirror and he's looking at me, yeah in my blanket, I got holes in my socks. There's a monkey in my kitchen breaking bottles with rocks. I got bacon, I got eggs in between the two. There's a sawed-off shotgun and a picture of you. I run and I run and I chase the fire. Fall and I burn in my own desire. He's crossing my T's and he's ducking my eyes. The stitches on your wounds and the scars I've signed If the devil's gonna win at the end of the day Put the arms around me, tell me it's okay Tell me it's okay, tell me it's okay Well, I've been walking in circles, I've been pacing the land And the bottom of my hourglass is filling with sand The riddles in the cookie jar, the bones in my head Jesus told me the answer, but I forgot what he said I run and I run and I chase the fire Fall and I burn in my own desire He's crossing my T's, he's dotting my eyes. The stitches on your wounds and the scars I've signed If the devil's gonna win at the end of the day Put your arms around me, tell me it's okay Tell me it's okay, tell me it's okay 
crossing my T's It's dark in my eyes The stitches on your wounds And the scars have signed If the devil's gonna win At the end of the day Put your arms around me Tell me it's okay 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 Oh yeah yeah It's alright It's alright Okay, AdamPaulLeach.com, remember that, guys. Um, right, I'm Grant Bartley, you're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show, um, and we're talking about the nature of human experience. We've been talking about uh, sensations, what are they, and how is they connecting to the outside world. But I just want to change the direction a little bit and, and talk a little bit about language in the last uh, section of the show. Um, I think that our understanding of language is different from a pure sensation of a sound of the sound of the words for instance you can under, you can hear a foreign language but not understand it which indicates that there's something in addition to the sensation of the language which is the meaning of the language now um, professor smith you have a you have an interest in this sort of area what what is your understanding of what is, it is about language which is additional or uh, different from sensation per se so, so you're absolutely right. We have um, that, that sensation of listening to an utterly foreign language, mm-hmm. one we don't understand. And, and there, people seem to be making noises, and you can't even tell where the words begin and end. Mm-hmm. You just hear a sort of continuous sound, and then they take breath, and then on they go. But when you're listening to me now, I hope, mm-hmm. uh, you seem to hear me speak with uh, sort of um, distinct words. There seems to be a difference between where one word ends and the next word starts. But actually that's not true. What you're listening to is a continuous sound stream. You're Mm -hmm. listening to me going, "Mm," and then I stop for breath. If I spoke with gaps between the words, it would be awful and unbearable and hard to understand. So, So actually, it's a bit like the foreign language case, you're just hearing continuous sounds and somehow you are chopping them into words. Sure. Now, the question is, do I have the same view of colour? And this may surprise Norman, and I think we might even reverse roles here. I think we hear meaning in the words because we put it there. Sure, I, I don't agree, think there's actually. meaning out there in the world. Right. So unlike the colours, I think, I think it's just in us. And it's only because we are hearing meaning in the words that we are hearing those differences between uh, speakers of a foreign language and speakers of a language that we understand. Okay, uh, Richard, Norman, do you agree with that, disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, sure, there's going to be invented soon a device that will listen to someone speaking mm-hmm. and transcribe it into language. It probably doesn't understand the actual significance of the different terms, but it can no doubt turn all the sound information into standard English if it wants to. Well, I think there's already programs that can take speech and, and write out of it. But, I mean, the, the question is, is meaning we some, something we add to the words that we hear, or is it something that's oh, yes, contained sure. in the words themselves? Something we read into the words, but um, it's not just the meaning, it's also the structure. Uh-huh. So there's no way yet in which anybody has found... Uh, 
a way of reading into language exactly the structure, the sound structure, and the grammatical structure that we humans impose on on uh, a sentence. So, I mean, there are lots of sentences which are uh, ambiguous. Um, she wrote the poem on the beach. Mm-hmm. Now, did she write it physically on the beach, or did, was it a poem about the beach? And when you you hear exactly the same string of sounds, sometimes you hear it one way. I saw I saw the man with the binoculars. Uh-huh. Did I have the binoculars? Did he have the binoculars? Exactly the same sounds, exactly the same words with the same meanings, but whether you grammatically organise them one way or another, you'll get a different understanding. Sure. I've been experimenting with um, reading something uh, with, with no gap between the words, as, as, as though I didn't know the language and it was all one word. And I'd say it's almost impossible to do. It's certainly very difficult, because um, when we see the word, we immediately associate it with its sound. Um, and, th- you know, that, that means that... Well, there's certainly it, there seems to be a lot of sense in what you're, you're saying, that, you know, we, we, we put a meaning to to the to the sounds compared to say a foreign language yeah. where it is very hard to to break uh, words down uh, or take words out of sentences um but what about uh, Barry, the situations where um a sentence can be can be misheard or um a sentence could be could be read completely differently not because of punctuation just but just because of the sounds because sometimes there are situations where um you know if you if you sort of stick one word at the beginning of another it changes the whole the whole meaning of the sentence and what you're doing is you're taking exactly the same sound chunks that you normally identify as words but you're just sticking to them together in a different way and that does lead to confusion it does i mean it turns out that uh, what the brain seems to do best of all is, is make contrasts and comparisons and so there, you're going to get contrast effects you're going to find out that a sound produced alongside another will be heard differently uh, if, if, if it's in a different context. So think of the word hand. So when you hear handbag, uh, hand you that, um, uh, you don't hear, as you think you hear, hand and bag, you hear handbag. Most people mm-hmm. say handbag. So actually what they're sound, sounding like is the word ham. But you don't recognise it as ham. So there's a, there's a way in which the sounds get, get mutually adjusted and affected. But if sounds that we actually hear for words are heard as words in our heads, and if the grammar and structural organisation is in our heads, then we can draw some pretty big conclusions, namely that language isn't really out there. Sure. All that's out there are sounds and marks, and language is entirely uh, in the head. OK, I want to ask the, really the basic question, though, about language, is that uh, you're un- obviously understanding what I'm saying now. What is it in the act of understanding? I mean, what is it that that you actually experience when you experience an understanding of words? Well, I think it's interesting because I, I hear these meaningful words as if coming out of you, yeah. but I think the only meanings I can hear your words as having are the meanings they have for me. The well, no, I don't I dispute that, but what but, is but the therefore, meaning that you're giving oh, them? That's a good question, very difficult, but, uh-huh. but I just wanted to say, um, if I'm having experiences of meaningful words, but I'm also listening to your voice... It's very natural for me to think that the meanings are coming from where the, sure. the voice or the sound source is. And a voice is the sound of a human soul, as Aristotle said. Uh-huh. So I tend to locate the meanings in you okay. that I'm hearing, even though I think they're actually coming from me. Well, you know, language works because we share enough of uh, common experiences that what I say can be understood 
by you approximately, let's say, you so, know, to be what I mean, what yes. I intend to say. There was a nice yeah. uh, experiment done by a couple of applied linguists where they had two people engaging in a conversation. It was all recorded. They separated them. They asked what, what the conversation had been like. Was it successful? Yes, they both thought it had gone very well. They asked them what they got out of it, and it was completely different. Uh-huh. Sure. Mm, but uh, still, I want to press that question. What is it that we experience when we experience an understanding of language we hear we hear the sounds as structured just as when we hear notes in a certain sequence mm-hmm. we don't hear it just as one note after another we hear it as music so we also hear speech as structured sure. i hear the structure in your in your utterance and i also hear meaning in your words it's as if i hear the meaning in the words and it's very tempting to therefore think the meaning is somehow out there sure. but it's not Mm-hmm. Um, one of the key factors of speech, of course, is, you know, is, is intonation, um, stress. Um, and uh, there's a very close link between that and, and music. Um, some languages, of course, are, are more musical than others. Um, and the way we experience words, the way we experience uh, speech, is somewhat like listening to a song. And indeed, we find it easier to remember words that have that have natural meter and rhyme. I was wondering if you'd actually looked into that. Well, it's interesting because you would expect that that, that there ought to be a kind of close relation and yet somebody could uh, lose their language and still have an experience of music. Somebody can become a music, uh, a kind of a musia where brain damage can, even to musicians, can render them unable to hear anything other than a random sequence of notes and yet still speak and and understand. So it's as if they're they're done... uh, by different parts of the brain, they're processed separately by different parts of the brain, which is very strange because you would imagine they would go together and yet it's perfectly possible to have one without the other. I have a friend who, who works with speech therapy and I asked him about um, severe stutterers and uh, he said, the, the, mentioned the experience that severe stutterers can indeed sing words that they, that they, that they struggle with um, in speech, but it uses different parts of the brain, which is, which is you know, quite amazing as you say. Um, but from what Grant was sort of, you know, looking for, for this, you know, what is this? What this, is the uh, meaning? This, you know, this, this other thing. Uh, what I, I'd, I'd want to call it like the third space, you know. Um, music is something, it's not just the, the, you know, not just the experience, you know, we construct an experience of music. Do we do the same with, uh, with, with language? Well, the thing with language is, is funny because language is an inside and an outside in that um, I experience your words now as meaningful mm-hmm. and I hope people at home are experiencing this as meaningful. And yet, um, by using these sounds, I can make them think about things that are not present. I can talk about bits of Glasgow or Edinburgh and get them to uh, think about things that are not in their immediate perceptual environment. How does that happen? How can I somehow make these words reach out and connect to things and Mm. put them in mind of those very bits of the world? That's the tricky thing to explain. Do do, um, philosophers have any answers to that sort of question yet? Well, some of them think there must be a causal connection between the source of the the thing we're talking about and the word itself, but it's very hard to see exactly how those causal connections run. I think it's about stimulating your mind to make associations with the words, even in the background of your experience while you're listening to the words. So but that's another thing. We're, we're running out of time now. Uh, you've been listening to... Sorry, Norman, you want to say something? I don't believe that uh, consciousness, which the brain produces, uh-huh. uh, itself 
is a causal has a causal effect back on brain matter. Right. That's entirely done by the physical laws themselves. Right. So that is the key, key feature of epiphenomenalism. But at the same, so I think it's causally impotent, shall we say? Yeah. But at the same time, I can assert it's supremely important to us. Why, why is it important if it well, doesn't we can do try anything? To, we can try to work to produce good, happy, pleasant, even joyful experiences and minimise the other sort, the painful experiences. Uh-huh. And that is surely, I would say, the main object of uh, what we should aim to do in life. OK, well, that's a great, great place to end. Uh, n- next week uh, we're going to be having... Uh, a bunch of eight, eight-year-olds having a live philosophy lesson. Um, you've been listening to Philosophy Now Radio Show, and uh, here's Ad- Adam to play us out with us another song. Can you save me from myself?